With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come on by The Dispatch, sign up, become a member, uh, become part of the team, become part of the movement, become uh, a supporter in a more tangible way, become a mensch, um, whatever, but it would be great if you could. And if you can't, we understand, but we're going to ask again, just because that's who we are, because it's like a business. Um, so, uh, I'm recording this late on a Thursday because again, we haven't figured out the schedule about how to do these Friday morning ruminants when I no longer have Friday mornings because we're doing the dispatch podcast on Friday mornings. Um, and, uh, so if things happen in the news type stuff, uh, between now and when you're listening to this, presumably on Saturday or Sunday, um, I apologize for not addressing them, but they have not happened yet. Uh, World Forum was great. I'm really not allowed to talk about it publicly. It was off the record. Um, uh, I think my speech went okay. I'm thinking about trying to figure out what to do with the argument in it. Um, maybe take out some of the jokes. Um, and um, um, maybe write it up. Uh, Caleb asked me, because he said that the five... I think it's the 500th episode is not that far off about maybe we should do a live meetup kind of event. Um, we would have like a remnant fan audience and we could do like a, um, you know, a set piece thing and then maybe some Q and a and some drinks and whatever. And we're, we're trying to figure out the details and kick the, kick the, tires on the idea but i like the idea in principle let me know if you have any sort of super clever ideas i don't know if it's going to quite be the sort of swimming to cambodia jonah under a um a central light on a stage um you know smoking a galwa cigarette um kind of monologue kind of thing but uh i don't know we could have fun with it we could play with it um um, so, you know, let me know in the comments or shoot me an email. Um, and thanks for the positive feedback, by the way, on the last, uh, ruminant thing, um, which I had to record, you know, in that weird room off of one of the speaker rooms where, you know, half right in the middle of the crowd or the, the, the physical plant guys came in and started moving stuff around. Not, not ideal circumstances. I did have a, f so for those of you who didn't listen to that, I basically made this sort of very brief, all too brief 
argument about uh, sort of what constitutes a unifying conservative metaphysic. And part of my argument, which I've written about a bunch, is this idea of comfort with contradiction. The idea that that one of the things that unites almost not all, but a lot of the sort of progressive as opposed to liberal, right? We're going to maintain those distinctions here. Um, uh, or if you want utopian um, ideologies or worldviews is this idea of, um, you know, the further to the left you move, the further you get to um, what I always call the unity of goodness, that all good things go together, that one good thing doesn't have to come at the expense of another good thing. And one of the things I love about conservatism, um, which includes a big chunk of classical liberalism, is this recognition that um, that's actually not possible, that there are trade-offs, compromises, uh, you know, uh, that are built into the fundamental nature of existence, of humanity, of, of human nature in particular, you know, as Isaiah Berlin, the great expositor of sort of major interpretation of liberalism would say that, you know, paraphrasing from, from Kant that, uh, human nature, you know, the, about the crooked timber of human nature that I can't remember the exact quote, but human nature is made from a crooked timber and, and nothing we can do can make it fully straight was this idea about the imperfectibility of, of humans. And, um, and of this reality, right? The, the immunitize the eschaton thing, which I always love to quote and talk about and joke about is basically a similar point, which is this idea that the perfect world, the utopian world, um, the world where there are no contradictions that Marx and Rousseau and lots of people, including some Gnostic heretics, which we're not going to get into, um, that is reserved for the hereafter. Um, and the here and now, um, is a world of flaws, of fallenness. Um, the best you can hope for is a good society, not a perfect society. And, um, and the more comfortable you are with that, the more I think squarely you fit into, um, a fairly broad category called conservative. And you can have lots of arguments about it. Anyway, I don't want to repeat this. If you listened last week, you heard me talk about it. Um, I have very little memory of exactly what I said because I was just racing through it. But I often, often can't remember what I said after I finished these podcasts. Um, that said, I was at AI a couple hours ago. And I bumped into um, Yuval Levin and uh, we were talking about some other stuff. Um, you know, mostly about how to get rid of Guy, but that's not for this podcast. And, um, uh, and you all said, you know, I'm not sure I agree with you about this whole comfort with contradiction thing. And, um, maybe we'll have him back on so we can really hammer it out. But it got, it got pretty heated. He threw me against the wall. Um, you know, he started talking about, you know, the, um, you know, the certain aspects of the Christian, uh, uh, philosophic tradition that, you know, uh, contradict what I'm saying. You know, I had to, um, take out his knee, throw him to the floor and start yelling about praxis and metaxi and these various things. Um, you know, and we both came away pretty bloody. Um, yes, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, it was interesting and it's got me thinking about this stuff and that's why it's in my head. And since I, you know, I'm just, I turn on the mic and start talking, uh, 
you know, whatever happens to be in the junk drawer that is my frontal lobe, you get to hear. So there you have it. Um, but yeah, we'll have you all on at some point and we'll, we'll argue about this. Um, and, um, you've is one of these guys, there are a handful of them in my life. When they say I'm wrong, it makes me, I don't automatically change my position, but I automatically re-examine my position. Um, because, um, I respect them so much. Um, uh, you know, Ramesh is another one of those guys. Um, so, um, oh, uh, in case you thought I was making up the words praxis and metaxi, um, I wasn't praxis, um, is a Greek word. Um, it mostly, I always think of it in the, in the way the Marxists use it, which is basically the application of, um, theory, you know, how we're, we're the rubber where the rubber of theory meets the road of reality, right? It's theory applied in the real world. And so the, the Marxists like to talk about how, you know, the Marxist theory, you know, as applied in the real world, and that, that is praxis or prac, you know, praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. But it's easy to remember what it means because it, it, it kind of, it doesn't rhyme with practice, but it kind of sound P R A C T I C E, you know, like baseball practice or basketball practice. And it basically means kind of not exactly the same thing, but close enough to remember what it means. And metaxi is a weird one. Um, I, as you guys know, I'm a fan of the philosopher Eric Vergelin. I think I'm very proud to say that I understand something like 40% of the things he writes. Um, and, Vergelin has all of these, they're not, most of them aren't made up terms, but they are sort of revivified, um, reinterpreted um, classical Greek and Latin terms that he sort of has fun with. And um, you can go really go down some rabbit holes with this. And so if memory serves, and please, again, don't quote me on this, um, feel free to Google it, you know, like what does metaxi mean? Um, but I believe metaxi originally was a concept introduced by Plato or someone who was talking about Plato. I can never remember these things in the Plato and, and, and the way Plato mo for the most part used it. It just meant middle space. It was sort of like descriptive, descriptive, um, like, um, you know, um, the second course of a three course meal is in the metaxi or the, the time between two meals is the metaxi. It was just sort of a, the in between two different things. Right. And, but there's this passage somewhere in Plato where somebody is saying something about how Eros was actually like a demon in the metaxi between the divine and the mortal. And there's something that Vogelin thought was really just the bee's knees about this. And he turns it into this very powerful phenomenon that is a big deal in his writings. And um, I just think it sounds really cool. I'm not going to try to define how he defines it because it gets very confusing very quickly. Um, but, you know, if we were a bunch of 12-year-old boys on the schoolyard, you would talk about how your taint is in the metaxi between other things. So um, there you have that. Uh, so I wrote a G file yesterday, Wednesday G file, which only goes to paid members of the dispatch community. And if you want to read that stuff, it would be great if you became a paid member of the dispatch community. Um, but what I wrote about was a couple of things. I mean, it was all on a theme. It was all notes on the Zelensky speech. Um, 
to the U.S. Congress. Um, I won't repeat all of it here, but, you know, some of it was light. You know, like one of the things I thought was really kind of funny about the immediate post-speech analysis um, on TV where I was, you know, switching around to look at uh, was um, um, a bunch of very serious, very important, very, 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 very clever hair type talking head pundit people were saying how um, the brilliance of Zelensky's speech was that he tailored it for the American audience. And again, I, have, I, got, I got no problem with observing that he tailored it for the American audience because it's true. Um, but what's weird to me is that people like made a big deal about this, like this was some sort of really brilliant tactical strategic decision on his part, you know, that he didn't just give the same speech he gave to the Canadians, you know, which would be pretty weird about how, you know, he tells the Canadians, imagine if tanks were rolling into Toronto or Vancouver, you know, that, that'd be a weird thing to say to <laughs> the U S Congress. Um, but you know, and I understand, you know, sometimes you get caught on TV and you're just trying to say anything at all, but it just seemed like it was just funny to me how many people said it like, you know, like this was a, penetrating insight that the average viewer wouldn't have picked up on. Um, but, uh, you know, the two points from the G file that I, I, I actually kind of want to expand on here, um, are one, you know, there's this thing, it drives me crazy on Twitter. Um, you, that's basically one of the only places you see it for the most part. And I think that's a good caution for a lot of people to, you know, as a good reminder that Twitter is not the real world. Um, 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 because you don't hear this stuff almost anywhere else. And there are people who think that they're, because they hear it on Twitter, that it's a, it's a reflection of a big movement. And I don't think it is. I mean, remember 75% of Americans don't tweet, um, and 80% of Americans broadly support what we're doing in Ukraine and how we're doing it. Um, so when you hear, or you see, um, a very small coterie of you know, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, silly people saying silly things about how Zelensky's a bad person and all this kind of stuff or that, you know, it's, uh, you're looking at a fringe and nothing like a representative, you know, movement, even on the right, you know, most of the jackass Republicans who said stupid things about all of this, um, have, uh, either gone silent or changed their tune, including Madison Cawthorn, who was saying, duh, it because ah bleep that sorry um who was saying uh low iq posterior fecal matter um uh after Zelensky spoke to the congress on that zoom thing uh he changed his tune um one of the last people who's still saying truly idiotic stuff is marjorie taylor green and i think it's because she doesn't know how not to um, and people who complain, um, um, you know, that I'm, I'm, that Marjorie Taylor Greene is, you know, um, that I'm too much of a pain in her ass about all this kind of stuff. I'm, I, I apologize, but it's just the fastest route to her brain. Um, so anyway, but the, you do hear slightly more serious people talking about how, um, you know, you know, suggesting, hinting, or outright saying that, um, 
you know, Zelensky should be condemned for wanting um, a no-fly zone that, you know, you know, there was that, I think it was Matt Walsh, who I dinged on Twitter last night, um, calling Zelensky the chief lobbyist, the number, world's number one lobbyist for World War III. Um, you see people, you know, saying that, that, you know, that Zelensky is just trying to, you know, get the world plunged into a thermonuclear war. And first of all, I don't believe that Zelensky is trying to get the world plunged into a thermonuclear war. And if your theory of what anybody's motivations are short of like, um, a cartoon supervillain, right. Or, um, um, or maybe a James Bond supervillain type, you know, person, uh, is that they want global thermal nuclear war. Um, uh, you know, or, you know, admittedly, or maybe Skynet, right. But that's about it. Um, if you actually think that that's like what Zelensky's actual motivation is, then you've, you've, you've got a fever brain and you should probably sit out a few plays. Um, now you could argue, and I think there's more plausibility. I disagree with it, but there's still more plausibility that what he wants could get us into a nuclear war. And that's something obviously saying people should be concerned about, but saying that he wants a nuclear war is essentially pro-Russian BS. And, you know, what he wanted was for Russia not to invade in the first place. And this is my, this is my basic problem with almost all of the anti-Zelensky stuff that isn't flat out asinine, dumb, um, you know, basically Russian propaganda. Um, you know, you know, the, the crap that Candace Owens is putting out there is evil and it's stupid. Um, and you know, I, I hate doing the cui bono kind of, or as the Italians called it, which I think is kind of cool sound, che paga, um, you know, which means who benefits, right? Basically, and colloquially, it basically means, you know, who's paying you to do this? Um, I have no evidence whatsoever that any of these people are on the Russia payroll. And, you know, and the defense for Candace Owens is that she has said so many other dumb, indefensible, asinine things about vaccines and other things that, um, you know, Occam's razor would sit, would be on her side to just say this is there's, there's continuity with her other asinine statements but some of these people it's just it, you start thinking about why would you take putin's side why would you spread russian propaganda um um if you know and you know, again for some people it's just for the clicks and the notoriety and the attention but it's not for, for other people you do start to wonder you know like what do they have on you or you know what you know, what is your financial incentive structure, you know, um, uh, that you're not disclosing? I know a bunch of people who keep saying that they think either the Russians have something on Tucker or that Tucker's being paid. I don't really believe either of those. I think he comes to his uh, BS honestly um, in the sense that he knows what he's saying and he's saying it for his own reasons and he's not doing it on behalf of anybody else. Um, I still think it's indefensible, but anyway, back to Zelensky, my problem with, you know, with the full spectrum of reasonable people who are just wrong to the whole jackass caucus and everybody in the metaxi is that, um, it's, it's blaming the victim, 
right? It's like, you know, it, it's, it's saying that Zelensky, who's this guy who I personally have nothing but sympathy for, like, you know, some of the things he's asking for, America has to say no, but I don't blame him for asking. Like, I mean, just put yourself in a similar situation and, you know, you know, you can, first of all, let's, let's, let's assume that he's still completely rational and that he has made a rational calculation that he needs these MIGs or, you know, um, or whatever it is he's asking for so far, um, to save his country. And I, I'm at a loss as to how, like, we should condemn him for asking if, if we think that some of his asks are unreasonable or could lead to something terrible, the obligation is on us to say no, but to be outraged at a guy watching his country just be destroyed, watching kids get killed, watching, you know, uh, maternity wards get bombed, um, watching the Russians lie about humanitarian corridors so they can bomb more citizens. Um, uh, you know, Putin is the guy who, under false pretenses, under, uh, you know, on, on total nonsense, you know, that, that he was liberating Ukraine, you know, he was liberating Ukraine from the stranglehold of neo-Nazis and drug addicts, and that this was a defensive war where he, he had to strike first before Ukraine attacked Russia. Um, these are things Putin has said. These are his own stated rationales for what he is doing. And the number of people out there who blame the victim and say, oh, it's Zelensky who's trying to get us into war, it is so repugnant to me and just, just, just earache, assache dumb in its argumentation that it just make me question the motives. I mean, like it's, you know, it is equivalent to, you know, why did the, you know, you know, if some kid is getting abused by his parents, you know, why it's like saying, you know, you know, why did the kid set off his dad? I mean, it's like the blame goes with the person doing evil things and ha who has agency. And that's the other problem is that people talk about Putin and Russia. And this is something that, you know, even very close friends of mine who I, I generally respect a great deal. They talk about Putin in Russia as if these are just cold, impersonal forces of history that have no agency, no choice in the matter, that we just need to understand Russia and the grand sweep of things. We have to understand who Putin is and make allowances for that because he is like a force of nature. And I, I think I said on here a while ago, I know I wrote it, you know, they talk about Putin as if he's a bear, you know, like with a bear, if you tease a bear, if you go in and like try to tickle its cubs and that kind of thing, or if you surprise it um, and it attacks you, that's your fault because a bear, you know, while it has some limited agency as a, you know, animal, um, it basically runs on instinct. But, you know, Russia is a literate country with, you know, uh, a highly educated, you know, leadership, Putin is a sophisticated world figure. And the way people talk about Putin and Russia, they make it seem as if um, expecting any responsibility um, or agency from Russia is like expecting it from, you know, an asteroid heading towards Earth. And all of the responsibility for how we deal with it lies on us. 
and none of the moral responsibility lies on Putin. And I'm not saying that most people believe this. I, I'm just saying that that's the form of argumentation that you start seeing all over the place is this really just sort of cheap blame the victim nonsense. Um, and I think it's grotesque. And um, anyway, I could go on, but I already have. Uh, the other thing I wrote about was this idea about League of Democracies. Um, you should read the piece. Um, I've written about League, uh, League of Democracies for 20 years now. Um, every now and then people pick it up and argue about it. And um, I think John McCain gave me some credit on the floor of the Senate at one point for it. Um, the basic idea is that I think we should belong to clubs that have higher standards than mere existence. You know, the, the UN, basically, the only criteria for joining the UN is being a country. That's it. If you're a country, you know, fairly recognizable borders, a central government, you don't need to have an army, you don't need to have democracy, you don't need to have the rule of law, you just need to be a place where someone looks at your passport where you enter it and you get to be part of the UN. And um, it's the equivalent of, of a club that just simply admits human beings and um, and has no other criteria, no other standards for it. And what I've always, was always driven me crazy is the degree to which people, you know, going back to the friggin' League of Nations or Einstein or whatever, I mean, there's a long, rich tradition of people imbuing in the, in the UN moral authority that I have no friggin' clue why people think it has, you know, going back, I go back to like, it's this idea going back to Tennyson of, you know, the parliament of man. Um, and it's ludicrous. I am not saying that the UN doesn't do good things. The UN does some good things. It also does some really bad things and it does. And many of the good things it does badly. Uh, you know, you can draw all sorts of distinctions here, but at the core of the UN, you know, the, 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 the most powerful body are the permanent five. It's not the security council per se. It is the five veto holding permanent members of the UN security council. And at the core of that group, there is nothing lofty whatsoever, save for, I guess, some sort of idea of dialogue from among among great powers is useful for maintaining peace kind of notion um okay that is like that doesn't you know inspire me a great deal but you know i'm not saying it's a bad idea but the core principle of the u.n security council is might makes right um it's just simply this idea these are the most these are the biggest kids on the block and, you know, uh, for the entire history of the UN Security Council, the five permanent members have had basically um, two dictatorships in it and three democracies in it. And um, I see no moral equivalence between, you know, the United States and Russia. Um, you know, when Russia agrees to vote with the United States on an issue, um, that doesn't f give me the tinglys. I don't think it's a particularly, you know, glorious thing. And, and they voted with America on all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, you know, the, you know, the reason why we're not having any peacekeep UN peacekeeping forces going into Ukraine is because Russia vetoes it because Russia is a criminal actor in the invasion of Ukraine, but it also has a veto in the UN. 
And so anyway, I, I think that belonging to an organization that has higher standards than mere existence is in America's interest. I also think it is in America's interest to support democracy. I also think it's in America's interest to um, include in its alliances in a more formal way countries that aren't simply in NATO. Um, because, you know, the, there are a lot of definitions of the West out there, and we're not going to get into all of them here, but one of, uh, as a matter of praxis, listen to that, um, one good way of understanding the West is it's basically countries with the rule of law and democracy and liberal institutions um, and that respect human rights and property rights and a whole bunch of other things. And those countries aren't just in Europe anymore. You know, Japan in many significant ways is part of the West. Israel is part of the West. Um, a bunch of South American countries are part of the West. I mean, they are part of the West and the other meanings too, but you know what I mean. Um, Australia is part of the West. And, um, you know, I don't think we should have an alliance called the Western Alliance because, that confuses things and it leaves out countries that belong in it, but having a league of democracies where you had to have, had to have certain higher standards, um, would be valuable and it would be valuable for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, first of all, it would provide some diplomatic and sort of humanitarian counterweight to, uh, the UN and other sort of international organizations because a league of democracies would have, um, much more recognizable and uh, in, in important shared values like democracy. And I don't just mean lever pulling in an election. I mean the full suite of things that we associate with sort of liberal democratic countries. Um, uh, it, would, it would elevate and expedite the kinds of uh, conversations and decision-making processes that um, can get stymied when you have to sort of like get support for, from authoritarian countries because, and this is no coincidence, the, you know, the fully democratic countries of the world tend to be the richest countries in the world. Um, you can see this book called suicide of the West to learn more about that. Um, um, it would have, you know, it would be a club that a lot of people would want to join which would create an incentive structure in geopolitics for people to get their acts together and become more democratic. You know, you just look at, like, I don't think Ukraine would have qualified for what I'm talking about, uh, you know, six months ago. You know, I mean, it still had work to do. It has a lot of corruption, you know, and all that. And, um, but, you know, the fact that Ukraine wanted to join NATO and the EU was an example of what I'm talking about. It was trying to reform its system in ways that would get um, uh, that would get it qualified to become, you know, part of the EU um, and NATO because NATO and the EU have similar requirements to what I'm talking about. Um, and I think also just like the competition, it would, you know, uh, provide for the UN in terms of moral authority um, would be valuable. And it'd be valuable for a whole bunch of other reasons. And, um, uh, and I'm not saying that this would necessarily be sort of a, you know, a military alliance, but obviously, you know, that would be one aspect of it. Um, it also, like, we just think about, you know, in terms of the current situation with, you know, Russia, if you could do things under the auspices of a different international organization other than NATO, 
Um, it doesn't have the same trip wires, right? It doesn't have the same sort of connotations. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's beyond an idea whose time has come and we need to think more about it. All right, enough with the recycling stuff. Um, what else to talk about? Okay, so yeah, getting back to sort of the, the sort of irresponsible people, and I'm, I'm thinking maybe I want to write something about this, so I don't want to go too far afield with it. But um, there's a lot of super wishful thinking. I, I, I think Shadi got Shadi Amid, you know, verged on some of this about how the war with you know the war in Ukraine is restoring is restoring the moral compass, as it were, of of American politics, and that that there's you know that populism itself is being, um, you know, delegitimized by all of this and all the nationalism stuff is being delegitimized by all of this. And look, I would very much like a lot of those kinds of things to be true. I'm just not kind of convinced by any of it yet. And I, I haven't read Ross's piece, Ross Douthat's piece on this or, or Michael Brennan Doherty's latest uh, about this, but I was talking to Steve about how I might want to write about this stuff and he told me to take a look at those things. Um, and, uh, um, but I do think that, uh, I do think the invasion of Ukraine has been very, very bad, maybe not for populism qua populism or for nationalism qua nationalism. Um, but, uh, and, and I know that saying qua a lot is the kind of thing that makes people want to put a cigarette out of my forehead. Um, but I do think, uh, it's been bad for certain of the leading spokespeople of these various nationalist, integralist, pro-Putin kind of things. I mean, it is just very difficult to take, I mean, I, I know this is me arguing my priors that, 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 that I have these biases already, but if you just think about it this way. When 80% of Americans are pretty much on board for uh, supporting Ukraine um, and see Putin as the bad actor um, going around talking about how uh, being pro-Ukraine is a sign of uh, idiotic hysteria and that you're buying war propaganda um, and it's something to be ashamed of. It's just not a great look, you know? Um, and I've been here before, right? Because like I was saying, don't buy, uh, you know, the the Trump mania stuff back when that was a very unpopular thing to do, and a lot of people have never forgiven me for it. Um, and the idea that the same dynamic cannot work among all these people who are, you know, trying to make Putin or Orban, um, you know, sort of dashboard saints of the American right. Um, I, I just, you know, I don't want to say they've been turned into clowns, but their position has been beclowned by facts. Um, you really can't take Putin's side in any of this objectively with um, out basically saying you're in favor of uh, unprovoked, unjustified, wanton slaughter of innocent people. Um, and uh among other evil things and uh and yet you see these and so like what a lot of people do is they'll do the 
I'm not pro-Putin. I'm anti-anti-Putin um, or anti-anti-Russia. Um, and it gets, you know, and they'll say, oh, this is mass hysteria. There's, you know, that, that, that Josh Hammer guy, he thinks that, like, all the Ukrainian flags around are just as demented as, uh, you know, what do you call it? Um, you know, the mask hysteria and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's sort of a desperate desire to hold on. It looks to me like a desperate desire to hold on to a constituency um, when the constituency is moving away from you. And um, um, and I think it's it's. I have to believe that that a lot of these people, I mean, look, I mean, there are still people out there. I don't know if Rod Dreher still argues this, but there are still people out there who think that the West and NATO really, their main objection to Putin is um, that he's, you know, he's not woke on pronouns, right? Eric Prince had that thing on, on Steve Bannon's show and Tucker does this stuff about you know, related to this stuff, but, you know, Rod was crediting this supposedly brilliant analysis that I read and I just couldn't believe people took seriously about how, um, you know, the central sort of, if you scrape below all of the, the sort of throat clearing about, you know, autocracy and, you know, hostility to democracy and irredentism and all of these other things, you know, the real reason why Western elites don't like Putin is because he's um, he's a traditionalist on gay and transgender issues, and um, I am sure that there are elites in the West who don't like Putin because he's um, he's bad, you know, by their lights on gay and transgender issues. I just kind of think that the 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 lawless invasion and slaughter of children and threatening the NATO alliance and uh, lies and horror and bloodshed of waging an unprovoked war um, and threatening to use nuclear weapons and chemical weapons and and all of that might have more to do with it. I just that's just my gut instinct on this. And again, I don't know if Rod still holds to all that stuff, but I do see him every now and then, Roger Eric tweeting or retweeting, you know, stuff that is definitely part of the anti-Putin Putin thing, and. Um, oh, so that brings me to the thing. I had my friend Vin Canato on the other day because I really wanted to talk about this, um, this notion that uh, Russophobia is out of control in America um, and the West. And um, I want to be clear. I think there's a bunch of things that have happened that are dumb and indefensible, right? I mean, like uh, smashing a window of a Russian restaurant is stupid and indefensible and nobody should do anything like that uh boycotting a russian restaurant <laughs> in part it's it's stupid in its own right but it's particularly stupid when you know it's actually owned by ukrainians um put anybody if anybody out there is in fact i mean there are a lot of these stories that are sort of that seem to go viral before they're fully fleshed out but i'll just stipulate if anybody's pulling dostoevsky dostoevsky um off the shelves or Tolstoy, that's idiotic. Um, if you refuse to, you know, if you complain when you hear Tchaikovsky, you know, maybe take a pill. Um, I think all that stuff is bad, but I also think that it's, um, you know, what I wanted to talk about Vin and we just didn't get deep into it because we were in too much agreement to sort of go over the stuff. 
um, um, first of all, it's just, it's nothing like the war hysteria of, of that we saw in the past in America. Um, you know, look, uh, and so before I get to the past, um, well, I try to call this thing up on my computer. Um, you know, I do draw some lines that some other people don't. I, I think not having, um, you know, it, basically just canceling cultural ties, you know, elite, you know, uh, institutional cultural ties with Russia is entirely defensible. If you've got some, you know, Russian conductor on loan who uh, is supportive of Putin or that you just don't want to put in the situation of getting his family threatened by asking, by putting him in a situation where he has to answer those kinds of questions, I don't, it does not break my heart. It does not feel like this incredible rise of jingoism to say we need to rethink this. Um, I don't know the deals about the Russian soprano who was who was singing with some opera and all that kind of stuff. But if these are formal institutional exchange kind of things, I have no problem with the idea of canceling all of that. Um, and I think the people who want to turn that into a first order example of how, you know, the West is losing its mind and it's outrageous and all that. I just think they're exaggerating the case again, not to say that they don't have examples on their side, but I just think the examples are just not all that powerful um, and don't really make that case. And, but there is this weird, weird thing among the sort of very Trumpy far right or the you know, sort of nationalist far right. You know, the thing, people who are like really sympathetic to Russia um, and to Putin there is something about this victim complex of like strong men who are uh, nonetheless victims, this whiny, this sort of bullying whining that you get from people like Putin um, that is very attractive to, to some people. I don't quite understand it. It's very much like, you know, like the comparisons between Trump and Putin are wildly overblown. Um, but that similarity of both being a tough guy and being a little bitch um, are really kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, I mean, Trump said in a, I think it was in a Washington post, uh, interview that, you know, he was accused of whining and he said, yeah, I whine, I whine and whine and whine until I win for him. Whining is a tactic. Um, but there's also a lot of truth to his whining in the sense that he would often, you know, revel and or wallow in how he was just the worst victim ever. And there's something contagious about that kind of victimology talk about this idea that like he is the avatar for the deplorables or whoever. And um, when they pick on him, they're picking on them, you know, and you, you saw, you find that kind of logic creeping in all over the place in American domestic politics. It drove me crazy when people would say that if you criticize the January 6th riot or uh, you criticize, you know, people who, uh, or if you, you know, fully attack Trump or, you know, engage Trump on his lies about the election being stolen, you're insulting the 74 million people who voted for him. Um, and that's just a stupid, stupid argument. And I've heard it from some really smart, sophisticated people. And I think what it shows is how condescending they are to the voters um, and what little regard they have for them. Because just as a matter of sort of the space-time continuum, 
uh, nobody voted for the riot on January 6th because it happened after the voting was done. Um, and if you think that uh, prosecuting or insulting people who smeared their own feces along the halls of Congress um, is an insult to the 74 million people who voted for Trump, then you really don't understand the fact that a lot of people voted for Trump because they were really voting against Biden and that most, you know, most Republicans, never mind most Americans, are appalled by that kind of behavior. And I don't care really what the polls say about some of this stuff because a lot of that is just sort of um, strategic polling responses based upon the idea of, you know, you don't want to tell the mainstream media what they want to hear. Um, but most Republicans, including, you know, the vast majority of people who voted for Donald Trump are, are, are basically decent people. Um, they're decent Americans. They are not anti-democracy. They are confused about what ha what's going on with democracy, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, you know, or I should say some of them are. Um, but anyway, where was I going with this? Oh yeah. So there, anyway, there's this whiny thing about Putin that is just very, very attractive to a bunch of people and this desire to sort of turn Russophobia into the real story here, which of course the Russians are pushing at every, you know, at every opportunity, I just think is just, just sort of just fails. Um, I think, you know, if you're going to look at where war hysteria in this country has gone in the past, um, this, uh, um, this moment is remarkably restrained and responsible. Um, but it, like, it's so it kind of, what reminded me of the, this is in that, that's why I wanted to talk to Vin about it. Um, uh, like I know a lot about, or I've, I've written a lot about, and I read a lot about, um, what happened under uh woodrow wilson yes there should be music going um uh during world war one and uh, my friend and former colleague dan mclaughlin at national review has a wonderful new piece up um at uh nr um called the hater's guide to woodrow wilson and he quotes me a few times in it it's very well done i mean i, I could add some things of course because you know the the, the, there are just so many reasons to hate Woodrow Wilson. Um, but he makes a, a, a valiant effort of, of, of doing a sort of cat, a, a Wilson haters 101 catalog. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, and, you know, he talks about some of the domestic stuff that went on. And it kind of reminded me, I remember speaking of this sort of infectious, uh, uh, sort of victimology thing and you know how trump would say you know he's the no one has ever been persecuted the way he's been persecuted and all that kind of stuff um uh i remember uh dennis prager wrote a while in 2018 and i went and looked it up and i'm reading this now uh he wrote you and i are living through the greatest mass hysteria in american history for many americans the mccarthy era held that dubious distinction but what not, what is happening now is incomparably worse. Now, I think, you know, the, I don't want to get into the Russian collusion stuff. I think it's a more mixed bag than, um, than, you know, Dennis Prager did or does than a lot of people do. Um, but at the same time, I think it's perfectly legitimate and fair to say 
that the mainstream media got wildly over its skis and all that. The Democrats got wildly over its skis on the Russia collusion stuff. Um, they're very selective about, you know, the stuff that they're outraged about, but they have plenty of good examples of things to be outraged about in terms of um, uh, allegations that just never bore out about Trump being an asset and the stupid stuff with the server pinging the Trump Tower server. And all That's not what I want to get into. Um, but at the time, uh, I sort of wrote a long, I think it was a corner piece about it, um, where I offered my nominee for the uh, greatest, what, you know, Prager says the Russia collusion story in 2018 was the greatest mass hysteria in American history. And I, I personally think mass hysteria has to apply to people more than uh, the cable news audience and cable news hosts on two, three networks. Um, and so I wrote, and I'll just, I'll read from some of this um, because I'm in a Wilson bashing mood and this ties into it. Um, my nominee for the uh, my nominee for the great ma the greatest mass hysteria in American history would be the domestic terror fomented by Woodrow Wilson during the First World War and the first quote unquote Red Scare that followed it. Um, and then I'll just start here. During the war, the American Protective League, a quasi official squadristi, basically that's Italian word for a bunch of goons, right? Uh, uh, a sort of quasi-military um, outfit. Uh, so during the American during the war, the American Protective League, a quasi quasi-official squadristi, boasting membership of a quarter million people at its height, beat up dissidents, spied on citizens, and fomented mobs in close cooperation with the state. The first modern propaganda ministry in the Western world, and I got that just so you know from you know that was Robert Nisbet's original observation. Uh, the Committee for Public Information dispatched an army of nearly 100,000 agents to, to foment passion for the war and distrust of German Americans and others. The Committee for Public Information's quote unquote four minute men, that's what they were called, that was their sort of unofficial designation, were equipped and trained to deliver a four minute speech at town meetings and restaurants and theaters, any place they can get an audience to spread the word that quote, the very future of democracy was at stake. In 1917-18 alone, some 7,555,190 speeches were delivered in 5,200 communities by these four Minutemen. Wilson considered German-American citizens and other, quote, hyphenated Americans to be enemies of the people. Wilson said, any man who carries a hyphen about him carries a dagger that he is ready to plunge into the vitals of this republic wherever he, uh, whenever he gets ready. The German language was barred from the public in many parts of the country. German authors were purged from libraries. Families of German extraction were harassed and taunted. Sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage. And as Sinclair Lewis half-jokingly recalled, there was even talk of renaming German measles as Liberty Measles. Robert Prager, I assume no relation to Dennis, uh, swore he loved America, but the mob didn't care. And this, is, this was a German who was lynched. Uh, they stripped him totally naked and they put, this is a quote from a NPR article about him. They stripped him totally naked and they put a rope around his neck and they paraded him around and down Main Street, making him sing patriotic songs, this historian says. Quote, and then they would take their beer bottles and break them in front of him so he had to step on the broken beer bottles, cutting his feet really badly. 
the article that I was referencing there goes on to point out that when they lynched him, they basically did it. They put the rope around his neck and they did it in three plunges uh, to break his neck. And the crowd chanted once for the red, once for the white, once for the blue. In, a 1990, in 1919, at a victory loan pageant, a man refused to stand for the national anthem. When the music ended, a furious sailor shot the quote-unquote traitor in the back three times. According to the Washington Post, the crowd burst into cheering and hand-clapping. Another man who refused to rise for the national anthem at a baseball game was beaten by the fans in the bleachers. In February 1919, a jury in Hammond, Indiana, took two minutes to acquit a man who had murdered an immigrant for yelling to hell with the United States. In 1920, a salesman at a clothing store in Waterbury, Connecticut, received a six-month prison sentence for referring to Lenin, as in Vladimir Lenin, as, quote, one of the brainiest leaders in the world. Mrs. Rose Pastor Stokes was arrested, tried, and convicted for telling a woman's group, quote, I am for the people and the government is for the profiteers. The Republican anti-war progressive Robert La Follette spent a year fighting an effort to have him expelled from the Senate for disloyalty because he'd given a speech opposing the war to the nonpartisan league. In Oklahoma, opponents of the war were tarred and feathered, and a crippled leader of the industrial workers of the world was hung from a rail railway trestle. At Columbia University, the president, Nicholas Murray Butler, fired three professors for criticizing the war on the grounds that, quote, what had been wrongheadedness was now sedition. What had been folly was now treason. And I could go on for pages and pages. I got, you know, behind me actually books and books about all the stuff that went on during World War I. Um, point being, you know, and we had political prisoners thrown in jail for thought crimes all over the place. It took the Republicans to come in to release people like Eugene V. Debs from prison. The American Productive League that I was talking about earlier. Um, they spied on people. They conducted interrogations for the federal, you know, it, it sort of on behalf of the federal government. They were basically the military wing of progressivism for a while. Um, anyway, I can go on and on and on. That's real hysteria, right? That's real mass hysteria. And that, by bringing this up, I'm not doing a whataboutism thing. I am not saying that because those things were really bad, we should have any tolerance for bad things now. But there is this just remarkable sort of short-term memory thing that we have in this country where people seem to think that if you um, really don't like something, it must be the worst thing ever. And generally speaking, when people say, say that something is the worst thing ever, it's because they don't know any history, right? Or they don't care about history, or they think history begins and ends with them. So like when Donald Trump would say, you know, um, when he said in 2016, while he was trying to get the, you know, the black vote, when he would say, you know, blacks in America have never, ever, 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 ever used, I believe seven evers, um, had it so bad. Um, you know, I assume that in a more sober moment, you know, Trump would understand how stupid that was, but that's the point is you get a lot of people who say this kind of stuff, um, because they don't either, they don't know anything about history or they don't think history has any importance because they live in the now. Um, but this idea that the you know, that Russophobia is running amok in this country, um, I just don't, I just, I just don't see the evidence for it. There have been excesses. We shouldn't like force people 
like there was this guy from UK who said on Twitter the other day that every Russian that you know should be forced to condemn Putin and that you have every right to confront them or something like that. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't buy that stuff. If you know someone who's Russian who lives in America, um, whether they're still a Russian citizen or not, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask them what their opinion is. But I also think it's perfectly reasonable, you know, for them to say, I don't want to talk about it. You know, um, I really hate any things that smack of ethnic collective guilt um, or collective responsibility or intergenerational responsibility. Um, so anyway, um, where to go from here? Am I going too long? Um, I do apologize to Ryan. who's going to have to clean up a couple little flubs. Um, what else? Um, there was a whole bunch of stuff last week that I want to talk to about, talk about vis-a-vis Ukraine. I'm, I, I'll probably just hold it, you know, tomorrow morning, Friday morning, we're recording the, um, the group dispatch podcast. And, um, we're going to talk mostly about Ukraine there. I do think that, um, we really are looking at, um, you know, I, I hate the phrase inflection point. Um, not because I don't believe there are inflection points in, in, in history. Of course there are, you know, I mean, like if you don't think there are inflection points in history, you know, it's very, it, it's very difficult to look at the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and not think of there are inflection points in history, but, um, um, there are an enormous number of people, Obama did this a lot. Biden does this a lot, um, who see themselves as the inflection point in history. Um, but they claim that it's external to them because then it gives them a sort of warrant to do all the stuff that they want to do. Um, and so I, I generally don't like talking about that kind of stuff, but that's not this, right? You know, what we have here is, um, you know, even if Russia ends up extracting a surrender from Ukraine, Russia has been, you know, pretty widely humiliated here. And, uh, the, the notion that its military is this daunting and impressive thing has been delivered incredible damage. And, uh, sadly that, you know, makes the situation more dangerous, not less dangerous because it's entirely possible that given the loss of prestige that the Russian army has received and that Putin has received in, um, in all of this, that he might think the only way to save face is to like use a tactical nuclear weapon or chemical weapons or something that finally, you know, extracts a, something he can claim victory over, um, so that he can withdraw. And that's, that's very scary. And, um, but you know, the notion of Russia as a superpower um, outside of the realm of nuclear weapons is just, that's not over, but man, has it been dealt an incredible blow. I mean, there are, there, there are reasonable and serious people now starting to argue that Ukraine could actually quote unquote, win this thing. Now, I don't, I don't like that phrase because any country that has seen these, you know, you know, this kind of loss of life, this kind of loss of, of, um, you know, infrastructure and wealth and, you know, you know, millions of refugees fleeing 
and historic, you know, cities being raised, um, calling anything like that a win just rankles. But um, so in other words, I think a better way to think about it is that Russia could lose in the sense that um, it, you start looking at the way in which its logistics are not getting improved upon. If you look at the way that if you believe um, even the most sober-eyed estimates about what their um, casualty rates are, um, and the fact that things are warming up and some more of their tanks are getting bogged down and the Ukrainians are getting more drones. And you know, one of the things that's really important to keep in mind about siege warfare, which I've been sort of reading up on a lot, um, you know, we don't talk about sieges the way we used to. We sort of subsume them into the concept of urban warfare. But um, urban warfare is, uh, um, in a military sense, almost everything is to the advantage of the defenders. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I've been reading on this a bit and I've been listening to some podcasts and apparently there are, um, there's a debate among people who really know this stuff and I don't claim to really know this stuff um, about whether or not tanks are useful in urban warfare. Um, and some people say yes and some people say no. It seems to me, I think the correct Again, my total layman position on this, I'm open to correction. I am not one of these people who wants to pretend like I am some super military expert. I am not. But my layman view on it, just listening and reading from people who have argued about this, is that um, tanks are useful to have if you're going to clear out a city. But the utility of tanks is greatly diminished compared to um, you know, sort of traditional open warfare where they have maneuverability, where they don't have to worry about uh, threats from above and below, um, where they have the kind of visibility that you know open you know open terrain provides that urban warfare doesn't provide. Um, but regardless, like like urban warfare is exhausting for the invading army, just in terms of being able to clear buildings. Um, uh, you know, and that's one of the reasons why Russian military doctrine is what it is. And they use so much artillery is because it's so expensive to do what the United States tries to do, which is not destroy everything, but actually sort of go door to door, um, kicking in doors and clearing things on a more retail basis. And I mean, again, that's a complicated thing for, for interesting reasons. And there's this guy I really want to get on the, on the remnant to talk about this stuff. But regardless, it's, it's, you know, the, it's costly in, in one sense or another for the invaders to do urban warfare. And it is entirely possible that Russia cannot, without a tactical nuke, without chemical weapons, um, cannot take Kiev, never mind hold Kiev. And, um, uh, and that's humiliating for Russia, you know, and that means, I mean, that's, and that's the tragedy for the Ukrainians is that, that, you know, a stalemate, you know, uh, whatever the geopolitical cost-benefit analysis for the United States or the West of Ukraine sort of bogging down uh, with, with the Russians for the long haul, it's just terrible for Ukraine because everything is happening on their turf, on their territory, with their lives. And um, it's heartbreaking. Um, but... Uh, 
you know, I think it was Francis Fukuyama was talking about how the Ukrainians could quote unquote win this. The Latvians are talking about that. Um, you know, the Russians are by all accounts just losing enormous amounts of resources and their ability to resupply, um, is kind of falling apart. And, um, that's amazing. You know, that is just, just, if you had predicted something like that, what, three weeks ago, just a little over three weeks ago, I guess by the time you're listening to this, um, people would have thought, you know, that you're crazy. You know, you're sort of pie-eyed, you know, fool. And, um, and so, you know, enormous credit to the Ukrainians for, for their courage and bravery in all of this. Um, but also, this is, I think, a fantastic testament um, or eye to the inherent problems with authoritarian regimes is that they don't um, allow for the free flow of information. If you punish the people who deliver you bad news, you tend not to bring the bad news. Putin thought he had modernized his army in all sorts of ways, modernized his military in all sorts of ways. It does not appear that he has, or at least has not done it sufficiently. And I think that has to be chalked up to the sort of the, the problems of corruption, the problems of, of lack of uh, respect for free speech and, um, and open processes. Um, and, you know, look, all bureaucracies have problems, uh, including in the United States. And a lot of those problems have to do with, you know, the, you know, the territoriality people have about information. You know, if your whole job, your whole identity is wrapped up in the importance of pieces of paper that you have on your desk, you're going to think those pieces of paper are really important. Um, and you're going to organize your life politically so as to protect the importance of those pieces of paper. That's one of the main things that sort of ruins, you know, that ruins bureaucracies. But um, in corrupt authoritarian regimes where, where taking bribes is expected, where the courts are, are, are corrupt, um, and where the guy at the top um, demands to hear, you know, uh, what he wants to hear, all of the problems of bureaucracy and administration get a hundred times worse. And I was reading this really interesting uh, tweet thread from this guy at the Wilson Center about how um, that Russia under Putin is not a military dictatorship. Russian wasn't a military guy, and I've been, I've been thinking about this for a few days now. It's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, Russian's a KGB guy. He's a state security guy. And, um, apparently, you know, uh, at least according to this guy, I can't remember his name. I apologize from the Wilson center, but I was reading some other stuff to sort of back it up. Cause I sort of did went down a bunch of rabbit holes with this. Um, the charges made at least that, um, Putin has kept his generals on an incredibly short leash uh, because the military is basically the only institution in the society that could conceivably produce someone to question or challenge the authority of Putin. And so they generally like to have their generals dumb. Um, and if they're not dumb, they're basically the guys at the top come from the state security complex, the FSB kind of crowd, the Putin sort of crowd. Um, and they, are put in the, the key positions in the military to make sure the military doesn't get away from supporting the regime. And, um, I haven't checked this, but, I, it, you know, this guy was making the case that, um, after military engagement, you know, after wars, to be blunt about it, 
um, generals who have developed a big cult of personality with the troops are either uh, charged with trumped up crimes or um, are otherwise sort of exiled or they're killed. And I, I don't know that that, I mean, I, I want to sort of do a deeper dive on that, but that's, that's interesting is this, and it would explain why the military is such, the Russian military is such a hot mess is because the smart people that Putin has put in there don't know how to do military things. And the, the, the dumb unthreatening generals uh, that were allowed to keep their jobs aren't good at the jobs for the most part. Now I'm sure there are some exceptions to the rule because there always are. But anyway, I think it's sort of a, it's an interesting, you know, the, 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 the historical dive into what the hell happened on all of this is going to be fascinating. Um, so anyway, uh, I guess that's about it. I've talked for a while. Um, thanks for tuning in. Sorry for any sort of uh, little confusions there. Um, and, uh, please, again, if you can become a member of the dispatch, that would be wonderful. Um, if you can, uh, um, spread the word, if you are a member of the dispatch, you know, forward our newsletters to people that you think might be, um, um, interested in subscribing, you know, the, the best salespeople for, uh, for the dispatch and what we're trying to do are, are, are people who are our customers. And, um, it was great being at world forum, running into all these people who are just, who just love the dispatch. It was really great. Um, you know, to do and to, to, you know, and these are, you know, anyway, it's great. And we are really, really interested in growing fast and, but growing smart and not growing by doing dumb things um, and doing clickbait and pandering to people's trying to make people angry or any of that kind of stuff. We're trying to like, you know, shed light, not heat um, while at the same time having some, uh, you know, some charm, some writerly, you know, excellence, um, and, uh, some fun. And I don't think those, any of those things are mutually exclusive. So again, thanks for listening and, uh, I'll see you next time. The German language was barred from, from, Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.